Welcome to the Ardent Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing Assurance by Charles Spurgeon. This small booklet is the sum of three sermons delivered by the Prince of Preachers on the subject of assurance. Spurgeon directed these sermons to Christians who question their faith and live with doubt concerning their salvation pointing to Christ and Christ alone as the author and finisher of our faith and the guarantee of our salvation. So sit back and prepare to have your heart and mind engaged as we dive into Assurance by Charles Spurgeon. Hello again and welcome back to the Ardent Archives. I am one of your hosts, Pastor Drew Bieber. I'm here with my co-host, Pastor Josh McDaniel, and we are discussing the book Assurance by Charles Spurgeon. And this is actually not uh, a book in the truest sense of the word. It's uh, a, a collection of three sermons that are delivered by Spurgeon on this topic of assurance. And in this discussion, we are going to be uh, looking at the first sermon, and that sermon is titled The True position of assurance. And this sermon was delivered by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle on October 2nd of 1864. And so we're coming up on 200 years since this sermon was delivered. It's a bit of a a daunting task too, because I was going through and reading these sermons, you know, and I was going through and trying to do it justice. It is a very difficult thing to think that I am reading a sermon by the Man who's proclaimed as the Prince of Preachers, right, right, and uh, and man, just to feel kind of a sense of, I don't have near the bravado, I don't have near the capability that he had, and it's also interesting just going through and when you read it internally in your mind, it makes a lot of sense, it flows very well, but when you go through and when you read it out loud, right, right. you recognize just what a wordsmith he was. Oh yeah. And absolutely. sometimes I would get tongue tied and I think, man, that was incredible alliteration that he used there. So well put that I couldn't get it out the first and sometimes even the second time oh, <laughs> that right, I would try right. to read it. Yeah. And you know, Spurgeon was was obviously a very gifted uh uh, speaker in the sort of the performance aspect of yeah. his, uh, of his speaking, and so I would, you know, I would be interested to hear the type of inflection he uses, what he emphasizes as he's going through mm-hmm. uh, this sermon. And we we can we can place emphasis on things, but you know, it it, it certainly does, uh, you know, bring to your imagination. I wonder I wonder how he would have said this. Yeah, you know, yeah, and and for me. Reading it out loud, I sat there and felt the weight of just, man, there is there is no way I'm going to do justice to all the, the, the ways he wove this sermon together. But it was such a fun project to be able to go oh, through. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And definitely when you read, um, you know, sermons like these, sermons that come from, uh, you know, the past, especially in this sort of old English era, um, you know, there, there is a lot of archaic language that's used in the construction of these sermons. There were a few times where there'd be a sentence and we go, what in the world is he saying? Yeah. The sentence makes no sense. And trying to figure out, you know, and some of those things may be an editing issue. Mm-hmm. Perhaps when um, this sermon was put uh, into print, you know, perhaps they didn't know, oh, there's supposed to be a comma here. Yeah. Oh, this is actually one sentence and this is another sentence. Mm-hmm. And so some of those, you know, some of those difficulties may be editorial difficulties. Um, but if you can kind of work through, you know, if I can put it this way, the language barrier, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we have as, you know, 21st century Americans and a 19th century uh, Englishman, uh, you you find, like you said, that uh, Spurgeon was a genius with his words yeah. and he knew how to communicate and he knew how to communicate clearly and effectively. And that's definitely seen in, um, in this, in all of these sermons really, but you see that in, uh, in this first sermon. And so the sermon, uh, is titled the true position of assurance. And the sermon is based on the text of Ephesians one 13. That's the text that he's preaching from. And so do you want to read, uh, that text yeah, for us? So actually I'll read it in, uh, he, he, 
quoted it uh, and, and is read in the sermons when we read it in the King James. But right. I'll read it Which from is the, the language of Jesus. That's right. That's the, that's the one that actually, no, it came off the mount of Sinai. That's that's actually where it came from. That's right. Was, yeah. King James be, English. Before King James was even born, you know, it, it came. To, but no, I'll read... Um, I'll read it from the King James, Ephesians 1.13, and then I'll read it from the Legacy Standard Bible um, after that, just so we hear the language or we hear the version that Spurgeon used, and then we'll put it in a more updated uh, English version for our listening and our listening audience today. So from the King James, Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So that was the King James. Let me read the LSB, uh, Legacy Standard Bible. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Yeah, and so you can kind of hear you know, the difference in, uh, the translations. Um, obviously they, you know, there's a distinction between a a translation and an interpretation. Mm -hmm. And so you can hear just in the different texts themselves that the interpretation of the text, what the text is actually saying, what it's communicating, what it means is very similar. Although the wording is a little bit different. Sentence construction is slightly different. Uh, some of the words were translated slightly differently and, and, and whatnot. And I do believe, um, you know, the, the King James is, is a, a translation of the Texas Receptus. Yeah. Uh, whereas the Legacy Standard Bible is using the Nesse Allen, uh, I believe it's the 28th edition, but it's using the, the Nesse Allen uh, yeah. Greek text. Yeah. And so the underlying Greek text may be uh, slightly different. I don't, um, I am not a Greek scholar. And so join you know, you, the club. Yeah, you, you can take my words with a grain of salt. But I, I don't know that there would be in this particular text. I don't know that there would be too much different between I, the Texas Receptus and the Nessie Island. I don't think there would be because of just how much we have from the New Testament, how many still, uh, uh, you know, copies that we have today from from. So yeah. long ago. So I, I now, there are certain it. texts that do have some major differences between mm-hmm. the Texas Receptus and the Nessie Island. Mm-hmm. And depending upon which um uh, sort of textual, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Tradition, textual, mm-hmm. you know, group group of texts that you use mm-hmm. uh, for your translation. You know, there might be some differences, but as far as this text is concerned, I don't, I don't see, think we see too many differences, and I think that's evident in yeah. what we see in the King James translation as well as the Legacy Standard Bible. Translation. One of the things about Spurgeon's, you know, the way he would go through with these sermons. He would take a verse of the Bible, and here we read the, the King James, you know, and everything like that. He would go through, and he he pulls out truths from, the, in this particular, it's just one verse. He pulls out right, truths from right. one verse, but he never he never bogs down in, in the language. He never bogs down in, you know, um, in the, you know, well, what it used to say in the other translation. He, he communicates the timeless truths that are essential to understanding the verse. Right. And so we read two different translations, but what we're going to be discussing today, you can pull from either the King James, the Legacy Standard Bible, the ESV, the New King James, you know, all these, you can pull those truths from this verse. Right. And so, and that's, and that's a strong, um, that's a strong evidence to the fact that, you know, well, well, first of all, that G, what Jesus said is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus said that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall by no means pass away. Right. And so we are living 2,000 years, you know, give or take, from the writing of these texts. And we are speaking, you know, several languages removed. You know what I mean? The English mm-hmm. isn't based on, I mean, we do have some influence from the Greek language, but English is primarily based on the German language, isn't it? Yeah. Germ- well, I mean, German, you got, German, you got some Latin mixed yeah. in there. You've got, you got some... some it's, but, it's, it's it's a mutt, it's, right? It's, it's right. So the English language is a mutt of all these other languages, and yet we're able to communicate the truths of Christ's gospel in our own language, and that's and that's because what Jesus said is true that mm-hmm. His word shall by no means pass away, right? And that is also evidence of the fact that, um, you know, regardless of our, you know, sort of uh, academic, uh, uh, you know, level of understanding 
Christ's word can be understood right. from the least to the greatest. Right. Right. You, you don't need to necessarily have, you know, uh, uh, a degree in, in biblical languages to understand what the Bible means. Now, I think those degrees will help. There is some things that understanding the original languages will help you understand, okay, now that it's it's being translated into my language, what does it actually mean? But ultimately, we don't need to get bogged down in the sort of nitty gritty of it uh, so much so that we muddy what the text actually says. Right. And again, it's evidence of the fact that if this is truly God's word, God's going to communicate right. clearly. And God can communicate clearly. God does not require, you know, us to have a certain intellectual capacity in order for him right. to communicate clearly. He can communicate clearly regardless. I mean, you look at Balaam. Balaam wasn't listening. And how did God communicate? He communicated through, through his donkey. donkey. Right. <laughs> and so if God can communicate through a donkey to get through to someone, yeah. I think God can also communicate through the English language to get through to someone as well. Absolutely. Um in this, he looks at this passage and he it jumps right off the page at you. He's dealing with assurance. And he titles the sermon, The True Position of Assurance. If you read this text, so you think, well, I don't see the word assurance in there. Right. So how does he get assurance? How does he come with such a, a, a very, a very well-crafted sermon about assurance from this text? And it's, I mean, he says, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, he does equate, he does say, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, that is where your assurance lies. It's in it's in that sealing that you can be assured that there is a sealing from the Holy Spirit. Right. That the right. Holy Spirit does a work. He seals you. But he starts off the sermon, he says, many sincerely seeking souls are in great trouble because they have not yet attained to an assurance of their interest in Christ Jesus. And so he brings it up right there. There are many people who wrestle with assurance. And Spurgeon himself had doubts and, and, and bouts with, with wrestling with assurance. You know, he, he struggled with it from here to there, you know, every once in a while. Yeah. And uh, many of the greatest, you know, preachers and minds in Christendom have. Luther certainly struggled with assurance from time to time. Yeah. And he is going to set forth using this text to say, no, we have an assurance. We have an assurance that is sealed from the Holy Spirit of promise. And so we can be assured of a salvation. He is speaking to believers here, or right, he, he makes right. the, he makes the, the claim right here in the many sincerely seeking souls. The, right, right. And he, he goes on just a little bit past that. He says, you know, in, in reference to these sincerely seeking souls, he says, they have believed in the Lord Jesus mm-hmm. and they have his promise that they mm-hmm. shall be saved, but they are not content with this. They want to get assurance and they suppose that they shall have a better evidence of their salvation than the bare word of the Savior. And so, you know, the, the kind of the main thrust of this sermon is he's he's trying to um, describe, he's trying to explain what the position of assurance is. What does it mean to be in a position where you have true assurance? What does assurance of salvation actually look like? What does it mean? Is it simply just a nice feeling that we have because, you know, maybe the food we ate for breakfast settled really nicely and it makes us feel good inside? Is that what assurance is like? Of course that's what it is. No, that's um, not what it And is. so what he's, what he's trying to do is he's trying to explain, uh, uh, to his congregation, this is what assurance is. And this is, and this is, you need to understand sort of the progression that takes place before you reach to full assurance. And so he does make a great analogy when it comes to our assurance that, that I did want to, to reference here. Um, he says their mistake seems to me to be this. They look for ripe fruit upon a tree in spring. And because that season yields nothing but blossoms, they conclude that the tree is barren. They go to the head of a river. They find it a little rippling brook. And because it will not float a, quote, great eastern, they conclude that it will never reach the sea. And that, in fact, it is not part of the river at all. They look upon themselves as being little children, and such they are. But because they cannot speak plainly on account of having been so newly born, they therefore conclude that they are not the children of God at all. And so the point that he's making is that, uh, especially when it comes to new converts and new believers, they want assurance of their salvation. And they recognize from scripture that uh, good trees 
bear good fruit, that you will know them by their fruit. And they look at their own lives and they say, I'm not producing fruit. I must, and, and they, they reason therefore that because I'm not producing fruit, I must not be saved. And it's not that they're not producing fruit. It's just, they're not producing the fruit that they think they ought to produce. You know, exactly. they, they right. see, exactly. they see, you know, Abraham and the Bible. And I mean, he was willing to sacrifice his son. Wow. I, I don't think I could do that. They see Moses going and he, you know, with the staff that God gave me parts of Red Sea and man, I can't do anything like that, you yeah. know? And so there's this sense that, um, well, because I'm not doing these these things, or even they'll look to to, to preachers, you know, right, and, right. man, they speak so eloquently about the word of God, and I can't do that. I stumble over my words. They look to fruit that God has granted other people to be able to display and to have, and they say, I can't do that. And so my faith must not be real or it must not be genuine. I and they wrestle or they struggle with their assurance. Yeah, and and kind of the best explanation in this analogy I think is is of uh is of ch- you know being uh being little children. Mm-hmm. He says they look upon themselves as being little children and such the, such they are but because they cannot speak plainly on account of having been so newly born they therefore conclude that they must not be children of God at all. And that's that one strikes me as kind of hilarious because mm-hmm. it, like imagine being a baby who can't talk, can't do anything yourself, can't dress yourself. You know, someone has to change your diaper. You can't eat yourself. Someone has to feed you. You can't get around. Someone has to take you. And then to reason from that, well, because I can't walk like my parents or like my older siblings, because I can't eat like, uh, you know, older human beings, I therefore must not be a human being. And right. it's just like, well, no, you're just... There's a progression that takes place. You have to learn how to yeah, do you're these just things. A child. And you're just you're just a child. Yeah. Right? You you can't expect a, a baby to act like a fully grown human. And it's not as if when salvation takes place that all of a sudden sanctification is instantaneous. All of a sudden, uh a baby's born and he's a twenty five year old adult who has a job and a wife and three more kids who are also twenty five year old adults with jobs and wives. And you right. know, that's not the way it works. Right. Right. There's You're a born, growing. and then there's a growing that takes place. Yeah, and he 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 really hammers these things home. But so what he he does, he says, you know, he makes sure that you know that that you have heard, you have believed, you are sealed. But you're looking to the wrong things, you know. You're looking to you're you're looking at something that that maybe you just maybe you haven't grown into yet, or that might not be where God leads you in your journey through faith, you know, in your, in your walk with Christ, you might not be in those places ever. God will gift you for a different circumstance, but he wants you to, right. He wants you to see from this verse that there is a clear path to assurance Yes, with, there is a clear path to the sealing of the Holy spirit. And he does it. He he makes it. There's a threefold, uh, there's a threefold way to know. And And again, this threefold way is taken straight from, the text yeah. uh, of Ephesians 1, which again just says, uh, let me grab out my my Legacy Standard Bible here yeah. and, and read that for us uh, one more time. Yeah. And so in Ephesians 1, 13, in him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed with, you sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Yeah. And so he makes clear that there's, like you said, there's that three, uh, there are those three steps. And, and here's what he says in, in his sermon. He says, there are three steps by which the hallowed elevation is reached. The first is hearing. They heard first the preaching of the word. The second is believing. And then thirdly, after that, ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Yeah. yeah so you, you get the, the, the hearing, the believing, the sealing. And so... He, he does a good job here of explaining. And, and we kind of talked about um, in our last session that, um, that Spurgeon grew up under the hearing of the gospel. Yes. All of his life, he was hearing the gospel. Uh, he does make an interesting uh, little note here, and he was such a wordsmith. He says, The apostle expressly declares that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He said, It is not through the eye gate but through ear gate that salvation comes to us. There are times in, certainly in scripture where people see Christ and they believe their, their, their sight and seeing him and recognizing from their sight, they, they do believe 
But we don't have that today. You know, the last person who saw Christ and believed unto salvation would probably be the Apostle Paul. Apart from him, we don't have Christ here on the earth anymore. We cannot see him in his. So how can we how can we receive this gospel? It's through hearing. Well, and even hearing the word of God, even in Paul's day, uh, although he saw Christ, the mechanism of his salvation was still the same. It was still the word of Christ. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Uh, The fact that that word was delivered by Christ, you know, I think is it, it, it. Somewhat secondary. Uh, yes, he did see Christ, but it wasn't the seeing. It was the proclamation of Christ to him. Mm-hmm. He that, knew who Christ was. He knew exactly what Christ was saying to him. Christ yeah. revealed himself to him. You know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, you know, he knew exactly what was going on. And then he was still sent somebody after he saw Christ. He was still sent someone to explain the gospel. Right. And And the point he's making in this is that... It is not, it's not by any human mechanism that men are saved. Right. Um, it is not by any uh, sort of human invention that brings about salvation. No human invention brings about salvation. But it is simply the word of God that brings about salvation. And the proclamation of that word uh, in the teaching ministry, in evangelism, uh, by the apostles, uh, that, that is the mechanism, the means that God uses to save his people. Uh, and he says this, um, he says, uh, God's true ambassador not only claims a hearing, but he wins it. For mm-hmm. there is an attractiveness mm-hmm. in his theme, which holds men by the ears. I, if I be lifted up said Christ, will draw all men unto me. Mm-hmm. And among the other drawings, there is this peculiar fact that men are drawn to hear where Christ is preached. Yeah, He who preaches Christ hath golden chains coming from his mouth, wherewith he bindeth men's ears, if not their hearts. They are not bound, they are not all bound to salvation, but bound somehow uh, they shall be. And so the point that he's making is that the the goal of the preacher is not to sort of use words to persuade people, to, you know, to persuade or manipulate people into, you know, signing their name on a piece of paper or to walking an aisle or to praying a certain prayer mm-hmm. or to, you know, raising a hand. I see that hand back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the the role of the preacher is simply to elevate Christ because right. Christ is the one who said, if I am lifted up, I will raise all men unto myself. Right. And the thing is, is that that the gospel message of Christ always grips people by the ears. Now, it might not always grip people by the ears or by the hearts, you know, in a way that that draws them to Christ. Sometimes they hear those things and the people, because they're of the world, they rally and hate and despise that gospel. Well, we see that in Christ's own ministry. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, uh, I believe it was John 6 in particular, Jesus has this massive following. And uh, I think James uh, James White is the one I heard say this. He said, this is where Jesus engaged in the church, uh, sort of the church, uh, how did he put it? Uh, diminishment movement. Okay. He had this huge following and he turns around and says, uh, you know, uh, if you want to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everyone's like, this is absolutely nuts. What are you, what are you, what are you even talking about? Yeah. Right. And he starts saying things like, you know, um, all who come to me, uh, all that the father uh, gives to me will come to me. Right. Yeah. All that the father draws will, will come to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will raise him up on the last day. And he tells them, you uh, do not hear my voice because you're not of my sheep. And he starts saying mm-hmm. all these things. And all of a sudden people start leaving. Like they this is absurd. Turning, this is a hard teaching. Right. Yeah. Is what they say. And so we see even in Christ's own ministry that when he elevates God's word, Right when he proclaims uh, the truths of of God, that people are drawn to him. You know, all these people came to follow him because he fed them. Yeah, right. They saw his miracles. They thought he was awesome. And yet, when he started to proclaim God's word, they were driven away. They said, "This is a hard teaching. Why? No, we're not about this. We mm-hmm. came because there was free food." The thing about the word of God is that you you hear it. And you've got to do something with it. Yeah. You can't just let it lie there. And no one who hears the gospel leaves without being impacted by it. They either leave and they are being drawn to it, or they leave and they are completely turning their hearts against it. Yes. There is not a middle ground. Nobody just meh with the gospel. 
Nobody does. And so that's what he's talking about here. It's not that everyone who hears the gospel is drawn by this golden chain to it, but that everyone who hears the gospel, because there is an attractiveness to it and because there is a reality to it and because there's a weightiness to it, everybody who hears the gospel does something with it. Yeah. You know, they 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 have to do something with it. They either flat out reject it, despise it, and hate it, or they recognize that I must put my faith in him. Everyone has to do something with the gospel. And so there is this great proclamation. There is this great gospel that we are called to proclaim. And in our proclaiming it, people will hear it. We pray all the time at this church that people will hear the gospel, that we will always be proclaiming it, and that we'll always be giving people to hear the gospel. And whether they've been in this door a million times before or it's their first time walking in, please send us people to hear the gospel and let us always proclaim the gospel because it is the golden chain, as Spurgeon put it, that will be used to take people, not just from hearing, but to that second point, believing, and to the third point, being sealed by the Holy Spirit. Right, right. And so we recognize that it has to be that people need to hear the word. And again, that's why at our, at our church, we make a, a strong point of constantly proclaiming the gospel mm-hmm. at every opportunity. Uh, I can't remember who put it this way, but when we think of the gospel, we think, yeah, that's, uh, that's you know, I hear the gospel and then I'm saved. But now that I'm saved, I need to move on to other things, mm-hmm. right? Let's get into, right, you know, right. the deep things. Let's get into the more serious things. And, uh, some teacher, I can't think of who it was, said, you know, the gospel is not just the A, the ABCs of salvation of the Christian faith. It's the A through Zs. It's the entire yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and so we want to make a point. And again, the Spurgeon is going to get into this, that uh, the gospel is not only our means of salvation, but that's also where we find our assurance. But we also need to recognize that in order for people to be saved, they have to hear the gospel. Right. And what is troubling in a lot of churches these days is they have a lot of really great uh, discussions, a lot of really great talks, you know, glorified TED Talks, in my opinion, yeah. about, you know, how you can be better with your finances, about how you can have a better marriage, mm-hmm. about how you can find fulfillment in your job, about how you can, you know, do all of these things, have more meaningful friendships. And, you know, all of these things are wonderful and they're great, but they for- forget the gospel yeah, they're and, they peripheral. Forget, they're, and, and they forget yeah. that the gospel is actually what's going to save people. Mm-hmm. If you give somebody the the tools to have a, a more fruitful and a, a, and a better marriage and yet they don't have Christ, what have you done for them? You've done nothing for them. Nothing an of any sense. eternal value. And so hearing has to take precedence. People mm-hmm. need to hear the gospel. People need to see Christ in the gospel elevated and he will draw all men to himself. Yeah. And so we move from hearing to believing. So he says, after hearing came belief. We know that believing does not always follow hearing immediately. And he gives this um, he gives this example here. He says, there is a case told of Mr. Flavel uh, having preached a sermon, which was blessed to a man, I think, 85 years afterwards. Yeah. So Mr. Flavel preached a sermon and this man heard it, but it wasn't until 85 years after he heard it that he was saved. Yeah. And he says, so that seed may long lay buried in dust. Yet had not the man heard that sermon, speaking after the manner of men, he had not received the quickening word. You may have heard the gospel long in vain, and it should be to you a source of very serious iniquity. If you have done so, it should set you trembling, lest the word should never be the savor of life unto you. And he says, you know, my receiving of the message is so far good. You know, the hearing. The hearing of the message is, is so far it's good. But the essential act... The act essential to salvation is the trusting, the trusting Christ. And that's the belief. You know, we can hear the gospel. And certainly Spurgeon himself, again, grew up hearing the gospel constantly by his dad, by his grandfather, by all these important people in his life. He heard the gospel being proclaimed, but it wasn't until he went on that snowy Sunday morning into the Methodist church and he heard the gospel by a man who he didn't know. All of a sudden, he believed, he received, he not or not just received, he believed, he trusted yeah. in Christ, and so he is talking about it's not just enough to hear, 
And you can hear it all day long without believing. Right. The demons right. hear the gospel. The demons know the gospel. And yep. they tremble, but they have not believed. They have not trusted in Christ. Obviously, they're not able to. But he makes a big distinction there that that we must be proclaiming the gospel, and that's all we can do. Yes. We cannot put a heart of belief in that person. But we, as the hearers, must be always ready to not just receive, but to believe that gospel message. Right. And, and this, to always be doing that. And this belief that he's talking about, you heard the word and and then you believed the word. This belief that he's talking about is is faith. It's not simply a, do you, you know, often when we think of believing something, we just think, do I accept it as true? And again, the demons accept Christ as true. That doesn't necessarily mean they have faith and they're saved. Obviously, that's not the case. Um, And so when he's speaking of believing, it's not simply just accepting what you heard as a true statement or as a true fact Mm -hmm. or as, you know, coinciding with reality. The question is, is that does this hearing produce faith? Do you now have faith in Christ? Do, do you believe right. in Christ? And and here's what he has to say uh, about this. He says, now a few remarks about believing. Faith in Christ is the work of God's Holy Spirit. Yeah. In proof of this, we have many scriptures. No man ever did yet believe in Christ until the Holy Spirit had quickened him and illuminated his understanding so that he perceived the truthfulness of Christ's character and was then led to trust him. But in the next place, although faith is the work of the Spirit, it is the act of man. The Holy Spirit does not believe for me. Right. There is nothing for him to believe. Repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit does not repent. He has nothing to repent of. He does the work in me to will and to do, but I will and I do. He does not will nor do what I ought to will and do. And so the point that he's making is that there is sort of two sides to this issue of faith. The reality is, is that faith and repentance is a gift of God. Yeah. No man comes to faith. No man repents except for the Holy Spirit doing a work in him. And yet the point that he's making is that the Holy Spirit is not the one that believes. What does the Holy Spirit have to believe in? Right. The Holy Spirit is God. Right. So the Holy Spirit believes in God on my, that makes no sense. The Holy Spirit is God. Likewise, with repentance, the Holy Spirit does not repent. What does the Holy Spirit have to repent of? No, I am the one who needs to repent. I am the one who needs to believe. But I cannot do this unless the Holy Spirit works that in me. The Holy Spirit, I love how he says that. He says, the the Holy Spirit works in me to will and to do, but I will and I do. Yeah. And, so, and he also says that the Spirit moves upon us. And, you know, by his mysterious agency, takes away the natural unbelief of the soul. And then we believe. So he takes away the natural unbelief. You know, I, I told you, you know, when we hear the gospel message, we do something with it. The natural inclination of man is to live in a state of unbelief. Yes. You know, so the spirit removes that unbelief through, uh, you know, and what Spurgeon calls a mysterious agency, removes the natural unbelief. And then we believe. And then he says, you know, a dead man does not believe. Yes. The man is quickened, and then his quickened spirit lays hold of revealed truth. And so he does make a statement here. He's saying, listen, because remember, his audience is not unbelievers. Right. He is posing it to Christians who struggle with assurance, who are wrestling with this incredible comfort to be able to rest in their, their faith, to rest in the work of Christ, to rest in the gospel. And he says this, observe this further. The faith is due to Christ. This faith that the, the Holy Spirit, he removes the, the natural state of being unbelieving into believing. This state of believing is due to Christ. And the faithful and true witness demands of me saying, I need to tell you this that I should believe what he says. I should believe that not only can he do this, but he does do this. Sinner, this is the unkindest cut thou canst give to Christ to doubt him. Yes. I tell thee that all his sufferings on the tree did not insult him so much as when thou sayest, I cannot trust thee. 
And it's such an incredible statement there. He he that that he says it hurts who Christ is, what he is more when you say, I just cannot believe in what he's done. Right. After he has already wakened your heart, he has quickened your heart to use Spurgeon's language. He has quickened your heart. He has removed the natural state of unbelief so that you can believe when the spirit has done that work. And you said, they say, I just, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. He says, no, believe it because right. the spirit has done a work in you to where you can not only receive it, but believe it. Well, and ultimately like it's an insult to Christ yes. that uh, like you're, you're almost insulting him by saying, well, I just can't believe it because there's no way you could save me. Mm-hmm. And we're obviously, you know, Spurgeon was a Calvinist. We are Calvinists. Mm-hmm. We affirm mm-hmm. man's total depravity. And, you know, one of the things that does, uh, understanding the doctrine of total depravity is we have a very keen awareness of our own sinfulness. Yeah, And often this keen awareness of our own sinfulness produces doubt in Christ. Well, because I'm such a horrible sinner, Christ there's no way I can be saved or, you know, there, there, there's no way that Christ can, can do this thing because I'm such a vile sinner. Right. And it's very important that we recognize the true nature of our sin. We recognize that it is first and foremost an affront to a holy God and that because God is holy and because we are not, that is infinitely uh, offensive to him. Uh, And yet that, and, and often what we think we're doing, right, is we think, we're exercising humility by saying, well, I'm such a wretched sinner. But actually what we're doing is we're insulting Christ's capacity right. to save. Right. We're saying that is we're saying that really the issue is not my sinfulness. The issue is Christ's ability. Christ is not able to save someone like me. And again, that's insulting. Mm-hmm. And Spurgeon makes that very clear, right? It's the unkindest cut you could give to Christ, right? It's the worst kind of cut you could give to right. Christ to doubt him. Right. Because he is, he's God. He's all powerful. Because at the end of the day, you're not placing doubt upon yourself. You're placing doubt upon the ability of Christ. Right. And to place doubt upon the ability of Christ is to almost say, I know nothing of Christ. Right. Right. Um, And so, you know, if, if the gospel has been preached, if it has been heard and it's been received, if not only that gospel has been received, but you have trusted in Christ, you have believed upon the gospel message, then Moving to the third point, then Spurgeon says, then you know what? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Yes. And he makes this this quick point before we move on. He says, you know, faith is not required in any particular degree. In order to salvation, it is not declared in Scripture that you are to believe to a certain strength. Right. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, that shall be a mountain moving faith. And I think that's often uh, when it comes to our assurance, that's really the hiccup for us. We Mm -hmm. say, do I have enough faith? To have true assurance. Right. And the point that Spurgeon is making, like, no, 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 no. Scripture doesn't lay out that you have a certain amount of faith. He, It simply says if you have faith like a mustard seed. It doesn't say, well, you need X amount of faith. And if you have less than X amount of faith, well, you may not have it. And that kind of logic is abused in our in, in a lot of pulpits today. Oh, I think of a lot of these health, wealth, prosperity preachers, you know, and, and they will tell you, hey, you know. Sow a seed of faith. Yeah, sow a seed of faith. And if you do, if you have enough faith, then you'll have and you know whatever insert or if you, you know, do not what, have it's because you do not that's have right faith. and if you if you if you Garbage. get sick if you if you you know go through financial struggles it's because your faith is lacking but if you have success then your faith is strong enough you know and so they base the whole process of salvation and assurance on what you can conjure up right right and uh and and so that's well, let's rampant. Just, let's just point out the fact that all of these prosperity, faith, you know, word of faith, uh, charismatic types, you know, all of them have gray hair and wear glasses. And so what does that say about their faith? They didn't have enough to keep, keep age eyesight. and to keep eyesight from failing, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's absolute garbage. And again, like you said, moving into the sealing of the Holy Spirit, we have to recognize that, again, faith is a gift of God. Faith is a work of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to go on to say that assurance is also a work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does not say, Scripture does not tell us that you need to have a certain amount of faith. If you could, in some way, sort of measure out and quantify faith, like you don't need to have a certain amount to have assurance because assurance is a work of the Holy Spirit. And if you have faith, if you've been given faith, if you do believe, if you've heard the word and you believe the word, 
the Holy Spirit seals, seals you. You have assurance. Right. Yeah, and he he makes he he does call to to he does call to our attention. He you know he says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and you know he he says that sealing is another name for assurance. Yeah, but he does say believing is not the sealing right and assurance. Although it is akin to believing, it is not believing. And he says there's a distinction between the two. He says, I want you to notice the distinction. In faith, the mind is active. He yes. makes that say he says, in faith, in believing, in in understanding, and the mind is active. The text uses verbs which imply action. It says you trusted or you believe there's an active part right. of being in the mind. But when it comes to sealing, it uses quite another verb. It says, you were sealed. So I am active in believing, but I am passive when the Holy Spirit seals me. Right. And this is why it's important not only to understand our own language, the English language, mm-hmm. because you understand the difference between active and passive verbs. Mm-hmm. But this is also where strength comes in understanding the biblical languages as well. Mm-hmm. Because while it may be a passive verb in English, maybe it may or may not be a passive verb in the Greek. And so, you know, I mentioned before that God is able to work through any means to communicate clearly, even even through working, you know, communicating through a donkey, right. which some might say that when I speak, it's more akin to a donkey. But, um, but but the point is that God is able to communicate clear that it doesn't mean we should not put in the work to understand what he has said in, in his word. And, and I love that. I love how he places that distinction between the active and the passive. And he uh, just shortly after that, he says, notice the difference between the activeness and the passiveness. So again, a quick grammar lesson. Active is being performed. Passive. Uh, well, in, acti- in, active, yeah. in the active, the subject is performing mm-hmm. the action. Mm-hmm. In the passive, the subject is being acted upon. Right. Right. And so you believe that's subject believing, subject performing the action. Yeah. You yeah. heard active. You believed active. You were sealed. You're being acted upon. Yeah. So we see the difference. One is active, one is passive. And so he says this, then again, man is commanded to believe in scripture in many places, but he uh, never was commanded to be sealed. Right. Faith. I love how he says this. Faith is a duty as well as a privilege, but assurance is a privilege only. And he, you know, he uses, it's not, it's not exactly the same, but he takes you to the same logical conclusion that he had in the believing in this way. He says that you know that you know so many people sit there and say, well, you know, how could I be worthy? You know, I'm not good enough to be saved, and and it it you know, and so you sit there and you see that people are actually what they're trying to do is they're trying to be humble. They're trying to you know say that I am unworthy of those kinds of things. But what they're actually saying is that Christ is not big enough to do what He says He can exactly, do. Exactly. He takes you to the same place here. He says, look, the verse tells you. In him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, have also believed. He's saying, okay, that's the active part. Okay, so the verse tells you, you received and you believed. And now to sit there and say, or to question your sealing, to question your assurance, to have to have that. He says, that is actually, you're taking, he's saying the same place. Well, then what you're actually calling into question is not your own ability to have assurance, what you're actually calling into a question is, can the Holy Spirit really seal me? Right, right. And again, you have to understand, you are being sealed upon. Right. You are being acted upon. And so who is actually performing the action? It's the Holy Spirit performing the action. Right. Like you said, to question your assurance or to look at yourself and say, well, I can't possibly have assurance is is not to look at yourself and question your own ability, but you're questioning the one who does the sealing. Who's the one doing the sealing? It's the Holy Spirit. It's to right. say that he's not capable, not able, not it's not possible for him to produce this assurance in me. And, and there are there are people who profess to be, you know, who profess to be Christians. And if you ask them, you know, um, if you ask them, do you believe you're going to heaven when you die? They'll say, Well, I, I don't really know. I don't know if we really can know. You know, and they'll they'll make that statement and they try to do it under the pretense of being Humble. They try to do it under the pretense of being wise or to not taking assumptions they shouldn't take. But we're not taking assumptions that we shouldn't take. If I can say with assurance, I know 
that I will be with Jesus when I die. Yeah. It's not that I am haughty and proud in my own accomplishments or in my own workings. It's that I say, I believe exactly what the scripture has told me. I have received the gospel. I have believed the gospel and therefore I have been sealed right. by the spirit. I was active in hearing. I was active in believing. And then I was acted upon. I was passive when the spirit came and when the spirit sealed me right. for assurance. I can believe in him. And one of the one of the strong points he makes is that, okay, so this assurance is is a passive thing on our part. This mm-hmm. is something that is done to us. But how do we confirm the fact that we have faith? Where like where do we actually go to find assurance? Mm-hmm. And uh, at a later point in the sermon, he says, he says this, he says, so that as I get my faith out of Christ, so I must get my assurance mm-hmm. out of Christ. Mm-hmm. The virtual means of my faith is Christ himself. And the virtual means of my assurance must be the same. As I think of what he did for me, I believe him. And as I continue to meditate, uh, meditate upon the self same thing, I have assurance of interest in him. You must feed upon the flesh and blood of Christ. If you would grow strong, into strong men in Christ Jesus. A touch of Christ will heal you from disease, but you must hold fast to him if you should enjoy spiritual health perpetually. To believe in Christ will save you from hell. To be assured of your interest in Christ will give you a heaven upon earth. Yeah. Do not be content with faith. Be thankful for it. Rejoice in it, but do ask for more. When you ha- uh, And when uh, you want to have more, go to Christ for it. For the same fountain which first quenched your thirst must be that which shall quench it till you are taken up to drink of the river of life, life with, which flows through the midst of paradise. And so the point that he's making is that, okay, yes, this assurance is something that is done to us, but we can have confirmation of that assurance. Yeah. We can have confirmation of our faith. And where do we find that? We find that in Jesus. Right. We find that in Christ. We continue to look to Christ. And again, this is why Christ is the one who must be elevated always. Because even if you have been saved, you look to Christ to know that you have been saved. Yeah. And if you have not been saved, the only place you'll find salvation is by looking, is by looking to Christ. And he goes on um, uh, a little bit later to say this. Uh, this assurance, like faith, is the work of the Spirit of God. He does this in various ways. Sometimes we get the seal of the spirit through experience. Mm. We know that God is true because we have proved him. Sometimes this comes through the hearing of the word. As we listen, our faith is confirmed. But there is doubtless besides this a special and supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, whereby men are assured that they are born of God. You will observe this in one place. The apostle says the spirit also beareth witness with our spirit that we are born of God. So that there are two witnesses. First, our spirit bears witness. That is by evidence. I look to my faith and see myself depending upon Christ. And then I know because I love the brethren and for other reasons that I'm born of God. Then there comes over and above the witness of evidence, faith and feeling the spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit. And so he's making the point that uh, we, we, we can find confirmation in experience, right? We experience certain things. We see God acting in certain ways. You know, Spurgeon uh, uh, made the point that one of the, uh, most influential books in his life other than the scriptures was the Pilgrim's Progress, which we did a series on um, at the beginning of the year. And when we talked about uh, John Bunyan's life, right? John Bunyan uh, recounted the story of when he was in the army Mm -hmm. and he was supposed to go out on a raid and he didn't. And the man who took his place ended up dying. And he looked at that uh, experience and he looked at that experience and said, this is confirmation that God was preserving him. And so there are things that we may experience in life that go, hey, that's confirmation that God's hand was over me. Uh, perhaps it's, it's an experience like Bunyan. Perhaps it's a, it's a small thing. Um, you know, you, you find joy in in difficulty. Uh, you find joy in the mundane and you go, you know what? There's no reason I should be excited about this, but I am. And that's evidence of the fact that God's yeah. hand is over my life, that, yeah. that the spirit is producing joy in me. He says sometimes that that confirmation of faith, that assurance comes through hearing the word. We uh, continue to see Christ elevated through the preaching ministry, either uh, in the pulpit or through reading the word. And as we uh, meditate upon God's word, as we uh, uh, listen to that word, our, our faith is being renewed. We go, oh, yes, I believe these things. Yes, I know these things. Yes, these things are true in my life. Yeah. And, and the hearing of the word confirms 
that which we have already believed. But he says this third one, this third one is, is the fact that the Holy Spirit actually bears witness to us, right? We have this, our our own spirit, our, our, the new heart that we've been given, that heart of stone taken out, we've been given a heart of flesh, uh, witnesses to us, uh, uh, he, he says here, he says, there are two witnesses. First, our spirit bears witness. Uh, I look to my faith and I see myself depending on Christ. And then I know because I love the brethren and for other reasons that I'm born of God, our own spirit bears witness to us. But then the Holy Spirit himself, God himself in the Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity bears witness to us and confirms yeah. the fact it's not just a feeling that we have, but the Holy Spirit himself comes and witnesses to us and says, no, 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 no. Believer, this is true in your life. Yeah. And this is not just, he, he makes the same, he says, you'll have heaven here on earth. And what he's alluding to there, and he makes a big point of it there at the end of the sermon, that this is a, once you have received the gospel, believe the gospel, once you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, that this faith that you live in, whether it's Big and strong, like you see, you know, sometimes we think we see lived out in the scriptures, you know, and we want to ascend to those places. Whether, man, it's just it's just holding on for dear life, it seems. You're going to live in faith for all of eternity. And you will always be able to look and, and have that faith in Christ. You'll always be able to look and find your assurance in Christ throughout all of eternity. He says here yes. at the end, he says uh, at the end of the sermon, he says, um, do not tell me that we shall have no faith in heaven. Nonsense. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. We shall find faith to be our sweet companion there. Shall I not believe God when I get to heaven? Shall I give up trusting my God when I get there? No, I shall trust him for my resurrection body. I shall trust him for the millennial splendor. I shall trust him for the gathering of the elect. Trust him for an eternity of bliss. Trust him for my safe standing where he has brought me. And so happy faith, imperishable faith, shall live and reign when sense and sight are gone past recall. He says that, This condition that we live in, this condition of faith, this condition of assurance, which is granted by Christ, which is granted through the seal of the Holy Spirit, which is granted through those things, those things we will abide in for all of eternity. And so he says to those who are listening now, to the believers, sweet brethren, sweet Christian, put your faith and trust in Christ now as you say you have and be assured that your faith will continue on through to the end because our hope is in Christ and our hope, if it is in Christ, is eternal. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion of assurance and we hope that it has been edifying to you and your walk with Christ. Now this conversation is by no means exhaustive, so we pray that our discussion leads to meaningful conversations with friends and family as you learn what it means to place your hope and assurance of salvation upon Christ and Christ alone. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at podcasts at northclay.org. For more information from Northclay Baptist Church or from the Ardent Archives, visit our website at www.northclay.org. We look forward to learning with you again soon here on the Ardent Archives.